going to continue our study of a Bible character. This week is going to be Zacchaeus. And I told Luke this week, I was hoping that he would uh, do the Sunday school song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. <laughs> he didn't want to go for that, and so I didn't even use that as part of my title. This is From Greed to God, Looking at the Life of Zacchaeus. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke from the beginning of the New Testament, or you can open your Bible app. If you don't have either of those, you can just reach for the, the Bible in the pew in front of you, and I'll even give you a little bit of a hint. It's on page 825, Luke chapter 19. Now, the there was a film that was released in 2011. It was called We Bought a Zoo, and it was based on the true story of a British man named Benjamin Mee. Five years before that, he and his family had purchased and moved into a 30-acre zoo. And in his book with the same title, Me says that his new neighbors included five Siberian tigers, three African lions, nine wolves, three brown European bears, four Asian short-clawed otters, two flamingos, a Brazilian taper named Ronnie, some large boa constrictors, and a tarantula just for good measure. The zoo was dangerously run down when they purchased it, and so me was faced with a series of challenges, including dealing with a rat infestation and finding enough money to feed the animals. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking uh, boa constrictors, rat infestation, we just solved two problems right there, right? Well, despite these difficulties, me and his family restored the zoo into place of beauty and safety that provided healing for themselves and also for their surrounding community. But it wasn't easy. And me admitted, and I have to tell you, I sound, I feel like I sound really strange saying me admitted, like the grammar police are going to come after me. But he admitted that there were a lot of times when I thought, what have I done? Why did he buy that zoo, and why did he restore it? In the film version, he says, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, just literally 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery, and I promise you something great will come of it. Now, that's the uh, storyline. It's a great line in a movie. Probably not a bad idea for jump-starting something important in your life, when I thought about it, 20 seconds was probably about the amount of time it took Peter to jump out of the boat. And what happened? He walked on water. Or 20 seconds is about how long it took for David to charge the giant Goliath. And what happened there? David went from being a shepherd to being the hero of the nation of Israel. And that's about how long it took for Zacchaeus to climb up a sycamore tree. So I invite you to look at a great passage there in Luke chapter 19. We'll begin reading at verse 1 and continue through verse 10. And Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of nature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, it's probably important for us to know that he said stand because he otherwise would have thought he was still sitting down, right? So he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now there are several things that we need to explore as we're kind of setting up this story. And the first is about tax collectors, because we probably don't know a lot about tax collectors, especially those that lived a couple of thousand years ago. And then also because this is a central part of the story, we need to talk a little bit about short people. So probably, uh, speaking of the tax collectors first, probably in every culture from long ago to the present day, and all the way from uh, tax collectors in the Bible to today's IRS agents, the taxman has been disliked and distrusted. The New Testament indicates that the occupation of the tax collector uh, was looked down upon by everyone. Zacchaeus was called the chief tax collector. And so by that, we know that he was in charge of a large geographical area and had many other tax collectors reporting to him, which means that he was also getting commission from them on what they collected, making him an extremely wealthy man. The Pharisees communicated their disdain for tax collectors in one of their earlier confrontations with Jesus as recorded in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. So let me read those for you. The Lord was eating a meal with many tax collectors and sinners, for there were many who followed him. And when the Pharisees noticed this, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, to a Pharisee, a sinner was any Jew who was not obeying the Mosaic law. Now, there are a few reasons for their very low view of tax collectors. First, nobody likes to pay money to the government, right? I mean, tomorrow or uh, Tuesday is going to be payday for many of us. And when we look into our check, we're not thinking when we wake up in the morning, I can't wait to see how much they took this month, right? Now, especially more so when it's a government like the Roman Empire, who was as oppressive as they were in the first century. Those who collected the taxes for for such a government had become the enemies of the people. Second, the tax collectors in the Bible were Jewish people who were working for the Roman government that had conquered and enslaved the land of Israel. These individuals were seen as turncoats or traitors to their own country. Rather than fighting their Roman oppressors, the tax collectors were actually helping them and then becoming rich by doing it at the same time. Third, it was common knowledge that the tax collectors cheated the people from whom they collected the taxes. They had to collect a certain amount and turn it in, but if they could get more and above that, they would get it and keep it for themselves. Zacchaeus even mentioned in verse 8, Uh, In his confession to the Lord, he talked about his past dishonesty. And then fourth, because of their skimming off the top, the tax collectors were very rich. So this further separated them from the common people who not only resented their taxes going to help this uh, foreign country enslave them, but also that these people were getting rich at their expense. 
So to sum it up, the tax collectors were the low of the low, the scum of the earth, and the only friends that they had were other tax collectors. Now this reminds me of a story of, I heard about the patrons of a local bar who were sure that their bartender was the strongest man in the county. And they had this standing bet. And what would happen is the bartender would take a, a lemon and cut it in half, and then he would hold it over a glass and he would squeeze it with his bare hand until all of the juice had gone out of the lemon and into a glass. And then the challenge was for somebody else to take that lemon and to squeeze it and to see if they could get even just one more drop out of that lemon. And if they could, then they would collect the $1,000 bet. Well, nobody had been able to collect on this. And so one day a short, thin, balding man comes into the bar. He's wearing his polyester leisure suit and his black-rimmed glasses. And he says to the bartender in his soft, squeaky voice, I'd like to take that bet. And after the laughter died down, the bartender grabs a lemon and cuts it in half, and he squeezes and gets it completely empty of all the lemon juice. And he hands it over to the small man, and he takes it and he clenches it in his fist, and he's not even able to get anything out at first, but he keeps squeezing, and to everybody's surprise, a drop of lemon juice comes out. And then two, and then three, and by the time he's done, six drops of this juice had come out of what they all thought was just a lemon rind at that point. So the crowd cheers in amazement. The bartender hands over the $1,000, and he asks the guy, what do you do for a living? And he says, I work for the IRS. (laughs) Well, now we also need to talk a little bit about short people because this is a central part of the story. And I get the, the whole being short thing. I mean, I'm not short myself, but there are many short people in my family tree, no pun intended. One of my great grandfathers was only five foot four, and his son, my grandfather, towered over him because he was five foot eight. On the other side of my family, my grandmother was barely five feet tall, and that was before she started to shrink as an older person. My oldest daughter, Kaylee, is, she says that she's five foot two. I think that's just wishful thinking. She's here this weekend, and uh, with our grandsons, we're celebrating my oldest grandson's birthday. And so Kaylee helped us plan a birthday party for him. Uh, It was just a little get-together. I'll wait while you get that. I shouldn't make jokes about her, because if you got to know her, you'd really like her. She's very (laughs) down-to-earth. You guys are a little bit slow this morning. (laughs) But it is important to this story that we know that Zacchaeus was a short man. In order for him to be able to see Jesus in a crowd, he had to climb into a tree. But I think there there was more to this climbing a tree than just being above the crowd. I mean, couldn't he have just walked to the front, kind of squeezed through the crowd and stood in front of everybody and been able to see Jesus? So what might another reason be for climbing a tree? Well, first of all, we need to remember the details of the story. The Bible doesn't just say that Zacchaeus climbed just any tree. It says that he climbed a sycamore tree. And as I studied this week, I found out the reason for that is because sycamore trees can grow anywhere between 40 and 100 feet. That's four to 10 stories tall. So Zacchaeus would certainly be able to see over the crowds. But you're thinking, well, how would a small man be able to climb into a tree that large? 
Well, another thing I found out is that the sycamore tree has branches that start out very low to the ground. So now we know why he might climb into the tree to see over people, but what else? The sycamore tree is a very leafy tree. The most common tree in the land of Israel is the olive tree, but it has very small leaves. And the sycamore tree, we're told, uh, has very uh, thick leaves that would they would hide somebody. See, Zacchaeus wasn't just interested in seeing over the crowd. He didn't want the crowd to see him because they hated him. And so being up in that tree would hide him as well as allowing him to be able to see over the crowd. We're going to see how Jesus restored Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham. Uh, we're going to pick it up again in verse 3 because Zacchaeus got a little bit more than he bargained for. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus thought that he was going to see a great teacher, maybe even to see a prophet. What he didn't bargain for was that he was going to find the Messiah. Because as Jesus, let's face it, if we were walking along that street, would we be looking up? No, we'd be looking in front of us, looking to see the other people, maybe even looking down once in a while to make sure we didn't trip over something. Jesus is looking up because he's looking for Zacchaeus. He sees him even though he thinks he's hidden. He calls him out by name even though they've never met before. Zacchaeus knows the identity of this man. Jesus said, hey, Zacchaeus, I see you up in that tree. Come down quickly. Hey, everybody, Zach's going to have a party tonight at his house. So Zacchaeus gets out of the tree as quickly as he can and as happy as possible because Jesus has made contact with him. But then the religious leaders saw Jesus acting friendly with a tax collector, the chief tax collector, and they all murmured, He's going to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And they all murmured. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that I can think of where we're told they all murmured. We read in some places where scribes and Pharisees murmured because Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. We read about the Sadducees murmuring because Jesus got in the way of their politics Even sometimes the common people murmured. You remember the story of when uh, the people said this little girl has died and Jesus said she's only asleep, and they murmured. But here it says they all murmured. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Zealots, maybe even John the Baptist's disciples, possibly even Jesus' disciples. Everybody was murmuring. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. We need to have very clear understandings of the tax collecting industry of that day. The Romans were using the same practice that had been used by the Persians when they conquered people centuries before. They didn't take back hostages to make them slaves and serve in their own country because then you have to clothe them, feed them, house them. It's very expensive. Instead, they would set these people up in their own economies and then tax the bejeebers out of them. That's Greek. 
But in order to tax people, especially when they didn't have bank accounts to tap into, the Romans needed people on the inside who knew where the wealth was. So they got collaborators. They found people like Zacchaeus. And these people were protected by the Roman soldiers so that no one dared to mess with somebody like Zacchaeus. And the Romans told the collectors to point out where the wealth was. So the tax collectors might have said something to the Roman officials like, you see that guy over there? He doesn't look wealthy, but I know for a fact that he's got 90 sheep up at his place in Bethlehem. And so then the Romans would go and tax that small businessman even more than they had before. And notice how the tax collectors were getting it from both sides. People might come up to them and say, don't tell them that I have those 90 sheep up in Bethlehem. It'll ruin me. And he'd say, okay, what's in it for me? And then he'd collect a bribe from this businessman to not report him, and he might report him anyway. The citizens despised the tax-collecting institution, but they despised the tax collectors even more than the institution because the tax collectors were using a relationship to exploit the people. Listen to what's written in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That is repentance. He repents in a very practical way. He doesn't say a lot of words about how sorry he is. He just says, whatever I have taken through defrauding people, I'll pay it back fourfold. And half of my, all of my wealth I will give to the poor. Repentance in the biblical sense means to turn away from the wrong that you've been doing, to change and do the opposite of that wrong that you had been doing. Then Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, and this is really incredible. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Now, as I was doing some studying, I found out that this word salvation in the Greek is soteria. Now, it's one of the words that's used in the New Testament to translate the Hebrew word shalom. I think many of you have heard of that word, and and, uh, you know that, or at least you've been told that it means peace. That's a little bit of a misunderstanding. Shalom is actually a greeting in the Hebrew language that can be used either when you're coming or going. In that sense, it's a little bit like the Hawaiian word aloha that is also a greeting both coming and going. The reason that people think shalom translates to the word, uh, the English word peace is because the direct translation is peace unto you. So this uh, Hebrew word Shalom is actually translated into three, can be translated into three different Greek words. This one, soteria, also can be translated salvation. So when Jesus says salvation has come to this house, he is also saying shalom or peace has come to this house. Now notice when Jesus restored Zacchaeus, he did so as a son of Abraham. That's the very thing that Zacchaeus had given away when he aligned himself with Rome as a tax collector. And it was the dignity of being a Jew, the son of Abraham. He had been exploiting that for the benefit of the Romans and for his own benefit as well. And Jesus restores Zacchaeus' sonship in front of everyone. It's public. 
Now, verse 10 is very important. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. There are a series of surprises in this whole incident, and I wanted to reflect on four of them. The first surprise is that Jesus noticed one person in a large crowd. And not just one person, but a person who's trying to hide. We don't expect that from famous people. If you've ever met a famous person, the one thing that you don't expect is that they'll stop, uh, try to learn your name, and spend some time getting to know you. If you've ever been in a line where you had a chance to meet the President of the United States, you'll notice that there, there are protocol people who stand next to the President. And they get your name, and then they say it to the President, and then while the President is shaking your hand, he's actually looking past you to the next person. And that's how they keep the line going. You'd be rather surprised if the president stopped and said, Hey, Mike, how's it going at First Alliance? Have you found that children's ministry director yet? How's the Wi-Fi upgrade going? Yet our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout his entire ministry, gives his full attention to the people he's with. When we lived in the city of York, there was a man there that had attended our church, had also been the headmaster of the local Christian school, before he became the president of Lancaster Bible College. And I knew Peter because of some of these joint associations that we had. I was an associate pastor at the church. He had been an elder there uh, with the ministry that he and his wife started called Jessica and Friends. That's a ministry to provide uh, support and services for individuals and families with autism and intellectual disabilities. My wife and I supported that ministry and were involved in it with Lancaster Bible College, where Peter was the president and I was a graduate student. The wonderful thing about Peter, even though that he was a very important person, recognized around the country for his work with the college and with the, uh, the faith-based nonprofit, even though I was recognized by almost no one outside of our church, when Peter would talk to me, even in a very crowded situation, I had his full attention. Everybody else wanted to get Peter's attention, but he focused just on me. And for those few minutes, it felt like there was nobody else in the room, that only he and I existed. I believe that's a very Christ-like quality and one that I wish I was better at emulating. You see this here. Jesus was sensitive to everyone he met. You never get the impression in the New Testament that Jesus is talking to this person and looking beyond them at the next person or the next event. He gave that person his full attention. The second surprise is that Jesus accepted the hospitality from a person who is so hated by the people, and rightfully so. We've all done this, well, the opposite of this, probably when we were in middle school or high school, and we didn't want to be seen with the geek, you know, because by transference of equality, that their geekness would rub off on us. Even though that person might be a childhood friend, even though that person might be our friend at youth group, we just don't want to associate with them in, at school. Well, thankfully, we mature beyond such pettiness, but it was wrong and we feel guilty for doing it. Yet Jesus was never guilty of doing such things. The third surprise was that a man like Zacchaeus, who had made his whole fortune by being hard-hearted became so repentant and so generous so quickly. He didn't say uh, to Zacchaeus, 
here's what you need to do. Here's a list of 10 things, and if you do these, I'll know that you're really serious about this. Zacchaeus knew the wrong that he had been doing, and he decided to make things right by doing just the opposite. It wasn't so people would like him. It wasn't to earn repentance. It wasn't done, it was done out of love for Jesus and the gratitude that he had for the forgiveness that Jesus had already given him. The final surprise is that a man who did so much real harm in his life would be re, uh, restored so publicly by Jesus as a son of Abraham. All of these surprises, and there are probably more, come together in one interesting and intense sentence. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. If you can understand why they grumble and why they're upset, then I think you'll begin to understand the very heart of the gospel. The people were upset for a very basic reason. All Jews were hoping for a Messiah to save them from their oppressors, and many of them were hoping that Jesus was that person. He was in the territory where John the Baptist had been publicly proclaiming Jesus as the coming Messiah. Even Zacchaeus was very impressed by Jesus and had gone ahead of the crowds and climbed into a tree just to see Jesus, maybe hopefully to see him performing a miracle. The people were expecting the Messiah, and specifically they were expecting the Messiah who would conquer evil and evildoers, maybe even evil nations. And we'll soon see how Jesus did not fulfill those expectations. Let's go back a few chapters to Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to read two verses to you. The first one is uh, verse 15. It says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. Think about how famous John the Baptist was. At that time, he was probably more famous than Jesus in many parts of Israel. Some people even wondered if John himself was the Messiah. Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I and is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we don't often read the next verse with that, but let me go on to verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, first of all, we're not farmers, right? So how many of us know what a winnowing fork is? Well, it looks similar to a pitchfork, and what it's used for is threshing. You would use that and that winnowing fork, and you would lift up the wheat and throw it into the air. The chaff then blows away, and it's later gathered and burned, and then the wheat falls back to the ground. Well, this is the reason why John the Baptist is saying this is because that's exactly what he was expecting the Messiah to do, to separate the good people from the evil people, or from the evil people and then take the evil people and burn them in eternal flames. Right then, right there. After a few days, after John had said these words, Jesus appeared to him and said, or John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we know from this verse that the Jews were seeking for a Messiah who would conquer evil, and they wanted the Messiah to crush evildoers. 
Now we're going to see through these uh, events that are happening that Zacchaeus is now going to be gaining ground. He's going to be gaining esteem in the eyes of the people. I mean, where can you go from the bottom except up, right? But Jesus is going to lose ground or lose esteem in the, the eyes of the people. Jesus is under the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, I see you up in that tree. Now, if this had been the religious leaders who were looking up there, they would have followed that statement with, you snake in the tree, come down here and grovel. And then they'd say to everybody else, look, everyone, here's the chief tax collector. And by the way, we even know his name. And the people would cheer because the evildoer, the the cheater, the traitor was being exposed for who he really was. But what does Jesus say? He says, Zacchaeus, I see you in that tree. Come down. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to get to know you. I want to spend time with you. Imagine what Jesus' disciples must have been thinking at this point. No wonder they all murmured. How is Jesus ever going to have a following if he keeps identifying with this kind of people? Jesus reveals Zacchaeus. He points out his hiding place in the tree. He, he heals Zacchaeus from his hurtful, sinful past. And then he restores the identity of Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham. And he identifies with him by spending time with him. Zacchaeus at this point becomes very generous and probably won over some of the people through his generosity. Can you imagine getting back four times from somebody who took something from you? They take $100 from you, you get back 400 Of course, Zacchaeus began to be more esteemed than before. But Jesus is losing ground because of who he's identifying with. This week, as I meditated on this passage, I wondered, where did Jesus begin to lose Judas? Judas, who was a zealot, a young revolutionary, a man who had spent his adult life actively searching for the Messiah, Where was it that Judas said, I can't go on any further with this guy. This can't be the Messiah. This isn't what the Messiah is supposed to look like or how he's supposed to act. So I don't think it was just the money that he gained through betraying Jesus that was his motivation. I think maybe right here, Judas was one of those who murmured, and said, this isn't what the Messiah is supposed to look like. This isn't how he's supposed to act. Let me take us off on a little bit of a rabbit trail. Have you ever read through the Bible chronologically? And by that, I don't mean starting in Genesis and continuing through Revelation. I mean event-wise. I did that this week. I have this Bible called a Chronological Study Bible that lays out the Scriptures uh, in historical order. And I was interested to know... What followed this event with Zacchaeus? You know what I found? It's when Mary anointed Jesus at Bethany. We're not talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, but his friend. And she had poured that expensive oil on Jesus' feet as an act of worship. Let me read to you uh, from John chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had 
and had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. Judas, I believe, was already bitter at this point. Something had caused him to turn in his thinking about Jesus. Maybe the event with Zacchaeus was that event that triggered it. What kind of a Messiah is Jesus? He doesn't point out evildoers. He's not conquering evil. He's not upending the Roman Empire. He's spending the evening with this sinner. He's a traitor to our nation. And that must have been particularly galling to somebody who was a zealot. So in the mind of the people of Israel, Zacchaeus is gaining ground, but Jesus is losing ground or esteem. The people were expecting a Messiah who would conquer evil. They expected the defeat of evil. The defeat of the Roman Empire is what they really wanted. But no one in the first century expected that Jesus would defeat evil the way he did by taking the sins of the world, yours and mine, on himself and dying on the cross. Notice he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is actually the one that found Zacchaeus. It wasn't the other way around. Zacchaeus thought that he went to find Jesus, but Jesus found him. Jesus went specifically to this place to have an interaction with Zacchaeus. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And it says, we love him because we're so amazing, right? No. It says, we love him because he first loved us. That's exactly what is happening with Zacchaeus here. He loves Jesus because Jesus loved him first. Friends, we've just seen the love of God. This is not a parable about love. This is a real-life demonstration. You want to know what love looks like in the New Testament? It was Jesus touching a person with leprosy, the untouchable. It was Jesus talking to Nicodemus and telling him something so difficult to understand. Nicodemus, you must be born again. It was Jesus talking to the rich young ruler saying, follow me, leave behind your wealth. It was Jesus spending the evening with Zacchaeus, identifying with Zacchaeus, absorbing in himself all the tragedy of Zacchaeus' life. This was how he set Zacchaeus free. Here we have love that comes alongside, love that's an event, Love that's powerful and able to give new life. A love that surpasses all of our expectations. Even the Lord's own disciples are totally surprised by what Jesus does. And this is the same thing that Jesus does for you and for me. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. Remember, Jesus sought out Zacchaeus before he repented. And he does the same for you and me. Our repentance is our act of love towards a Savior that would seek us out while we were still in bondage to our sin. Zacchaeus' willingness to make restitution was proof that his conversion was genuine. It was not the fruit, or it was the fruit, not the condition of his salvation. As I studied the Old Testament law, trying to figure out why Zacchaeus gave back so much, I found that the Old Testament law required a penalty of one-fifth as restitution, not four times. So Zacchaeus was doing far more than was required of him. 
the law required fourfold restitution only when an animal was stolen and killed. Even if an animal was stolen but then returned, it was only twofold restitution. But Zacchaeus knew his own crimes and acknowledged that he was as guilty as the lowest of thieves. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Zacchaeus did this because he had just been given spiritual riches beyond comprehension, and he did not mind the loss of his material wealth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a great reminder to us not only of um, the fact that you seek us before we ever seek you, of your love for us despite our unloving behavior, but also that uh, we often are looking for the wrong kind of a Savior. Even this week, we may have uh, seen the things that are going on around the world and thought, How could a a God of love allow these things to happen? The Messiah came to seek and to save the lost, to change individuals one person at a time. He did not come to set politicians and politics on their head. Father, you are a great and mighty God, and we do ask that you would change us first and that you would change others and allow us to be the the ones that spread the good news and that through this, your kingdom would come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.